If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. In 1862, you wouldn't find yourself traveling in an open truck. In 1840, you might well do. Um, that happens really because of a few far-sighted and I think um, genuinely idealistic um, reformers. That was Simon Bradley talking about the history of railways. It does represent that sort of great period of history that was sort of about to come to an end mm. and our lives are so different now. And that was Aidan McMichael on location at Titanic Belfast. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our third podcast of December 2015. 
I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. First up this week is Simon Bradley, a writer and historian who is joint editor of the Pevsner Architectural Guides. Simon's most recent book is The Railways, Nation, Network and People, which explores 200 years of Britain's rail history. He spoke to our reviews editor, Matt Elton. I think something that interests me is your particular approach to this huge topic in that you focus on kind of arenas, kind of social arenas, um, starting, I guess, with the carriage. What can we learn about someone's experience in a carriage? Say, if we were to travel back in time um, to a carriage, uh, how much would class shape our experiences? Oh, massively, massively, and, and more so than now. I mean, now, you know, um, you're on a long-distance train. There's a loo. It's the same loo for everyone. Um, go back a long way, and you haven't got a loo at all, but um, there's a sort of interim time when um, there's a sort of catching up. I mean, it's a, it's a, Sorry, I'm not explaining very well, but it's a very um, – it's a mixture of startlingly um, harsh inequalities and surprising degrees of levelling up. Um, so if you go right back to the beginning of the railways, let's say 1840, then you've got um, carriages which are essentially the same as the road carriages of the well-off um, or the stagecoaches, which were always a very expensive way to travel. Um, nicely upholstered, uh, beautifully liveried, um, the best sort of suspension and everything they could manage. Um, but you've also got people travelling in cattle trucks, uh, literally so in some cases. They're travelling in open open trucks which have been crudely adapted, exposed to the wind and the rain. Um, and uh, that changes, and that changes quite fast because, um, not because the railways want it to change, but because um, there's a, a very strong steer from central government. Um, and the hero here is, is Gladstone, who uh, um, imposes a sort of minimum standard. Then after that, the railways find actually that all these third-class passengers, um, or parliamentary class, which is a sort of variant of third-class, uh, actually then, you know, <laughs> they're, they're good business. Um, since they've got to take them, um, they can make a go of it. And um, some of them were never reluctant anyway. Some of them realised the future, you know, lay in mass transportation. So they start competing. And also as the railway network expands, the railways are beginning to compete with each other. They're not at first because each railway effectively is a monopoly. You know, the Great Western is the only way to get to from London to Bristol. Um, actually, that one monopoly more or less stayed in, 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 in any sort of realistic sense. But in other cases, there's quite strong competition, you know, stations with towns with stations from several companies. So they're in a, a, a race for uh, custom and they can do it by upgrading. Um, so gradually, as corridor connections, side corridors come in, you can walk through the train, you can visit the loo, you can, you know, go to the go to the restaurant car if there is one. Um, you end up with a sort of um, more democratic experience. And three classes of the early years wither away, or rather the middle one does, and you're left with first class, third class, almost everywhere. And it's a, a relic that third class is called third class, because second class has pretty well disappeared. Um, effectively, third class has become the new second class. And um, by... Just before the First World War, I forget the exact figure, but uh, you know, 95, 96% of railway travel is third class. And that means that the ordinary middle classes are traveling with the working classes, um, the less well off, in, on the same terms. Mm. 
That's something that interests me, actually, is this idea that you say in the book about how it was so packed it's comparable to travelling in a taxi now where all but one seat is filled. What experiences did people have kind of in this condition of travelling with other people all around them? Well, I'm just old enough to have come in at the very end of all this because the very last carriages that just had um, on the main on the national system that were just isolated compartments, a door on either side, you know, and then just bench seats facing one another. They were still running into the early 80s. And um, I used to go to school sometimes on one of them. And well, it was quite it was quite a strange experience, but it was one you got used to because you know I mean you're a, you're an entry level human being you 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 sort of accept and and um, fall in with what you find and everyone else there would have been used to them but you had to clamber over people you know no one wants to be the person um, everyone wants to sit next to the window so those seats filled up and then there's the middle territory and you go and sit in the middle if there are people already sitting by the window but in Russia you have to be you know, 11 people in a compartment for 12. And um, you have to sort of <laughs> open the door, look in, um, sort of work out where the, the, the potential to wedge yourself yeah, might be uh, highest. Um, so a trade-off between the existing space and the ease of getting to it and sort of apologize and turn sideways and, you know, excuse me, and bump past people's knees and newspapers and all the rest of it and sort of wedge yourself in on the, the side with only five rather than six. And it might be a smoker as well. So the, and that might be the, your only choice would be in the smoker. So the air might have been kind of, you know, gray and thick with, with fumes. So it was actually a pretty horrible experience but you just accepted it you know as you almost as you would with foreign travel you think it's um uh, this is this is how i'm going to be traveling and so you make you make the most of it mm. do we get a sense of what people's anxieties about traveling by rail were uh i suppose again i could say that um having traveled in those compartments then yeah i could connect with that because if you're sitting there and there's someone on your own and someone gets in then you sort of size that person up and you know 14 or 15 you're 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 generally in a state of adolescent nervousness anyway um if you're female um then the scope for anxiety is you know hugely increased so um weird old men muttering um drunks um <laughs> i don't i never sh- i never shared a, never shared a compartment with an angry skinhead but you know you <laughs> You couldn't help but, but wonder when the door swung open who was going to be your traveling companion and for how long and uh, whether they might have a kind of, uh, you know, private agenda, let's say. Hmm. I mean, how comparable is the experience of, let's say, the 19th century with that of the 21st of traveling by train? Oh, well, a great many changes, great many similarities. Um, just thinking about the financial side, for instance, because that's something that regularly comes up um, with fare increases and so on. Um, the thing which may, may now surprise people who've got used to the present setup is uh, that rail fares were priced at a standard rate, and uh, you would just get <laughs> you would get that standard rate just by turning up and buying a ticket. But buying a ticket in advance, um, you might do it in order to uh, avoid a rush at the uh, booking office, but you wouldn't do it to save money because there, were, there, there weren't um, advance discounted fares, and the uh, rate of the rate you paid was determined by distance. So, um, you know, at a penny a mile, tuppence a mile or something, it varied, it went up over the years and it varied according to what class you were traveling. But um, one of the peculiar paradoxes of that was if the railways uh, built a better route and um, going down to Bristol, for example, there's, a, there's a, the original route um, was uh, 
straightened out and bypassed and going down to the West Country again, sort of bypasses were built, which avoided the earlier loops that the lines had taken. Then their fares had to become cheaper. So they were improving the service, but you didn't pay more for it, you paid less. You also talk in the book about the infrastructure of the railways, obviously. What was the biggest period of change uh, for this system? Uh, I suppose, I mean, there's a lot of talk now about how the biggest uh, investments since Victorian times, and, um, well, it all depends on how you run the numbers, like a lot of uh, um, these these accountancy things. But actually, really, the, the, the 50s, the mid-50s into the, the mid-60s and the late 60s, perhaps, then that's the, uh, the time of some of the greatest convulsions, because the railways enter, uh, uh, 1955, there's something called the modernization plan. It assumes things are pretty well going to go on as they were, um, but uh, steam will disappear and be replaced by diesel and electrification. Um, what they don't anticipate is the tremendous growth of road transport and, and the complete disappearance of the, a lot of the business model that they're working on. So by 62, 63, we've got Dr. Beeching coming in, um, looking at this by then basket case, you know, plotting the graphs into the future and saying, right, we've got to make this thing profitable, because that was his brief from the ministry. And any part of the system that loses money has got to go. Um, so the beaching, it's it's a almost, uh, um, you know, 180 degree turn, not quite that, because beaching does have some constructive ideas. Um, but it does mean that not only does steam, in, uh, does steam disappear, um, but a lot of the system disappears as well, and a lot of the traffic that used to be carried. And the a, a big theme in the book is just to remember that railways um, weren't built um, exclusively to carry passengers, were often even primarily to carry passengers. Uh, they were freight and goods carriers that carried passengers too, in a great many cases. And um, the uh, freight sort of gradually overtook passenger to be the, the major source of income and often the major source of profit. Um, but when all that goes into reverse, you know, when you're no longer sending wagons of coal up, up uh, branch lines or when you, you, you realize quite how much money you're losing when you do these little small consignments, then it's very hard to know um, how to play it. Uh, so at the end of the 60s, the railways are still trying to cope with small consignments of goods and they're still reshuffling them in these gigantic marshalling yards, which came in in the 20th century, sort of huge um, sorting areas um, full of sidings where trains were broken down into individual wagons or groups of wagons recoupled, sent on their way. Um, And the whole thing is still hemorrhaging money. And actually the future lies with the complete train loads of trains, things like freight liner trains of of compartments, you know, coming off the ship at Southampton, wherever, um, and going up north. You can make money on that and that still runs. Um, But um, so behind the passenger experience is this economic turmoil uh, relating to the infrastructure and especially, I think, relating to the transport of freight and goods. Are there any other major ways that you'd like to talk about in which the rail network has shaped the social world around it? Well, lose lose count, really. Um, I mean, there's a big story, which is always to some extent a local story about um, its relationship, the the railway's relationship with um, settlement. You know, um, there are... um, Again, it's sometimes the exceptions prove the rule. There's um, a line near where I live in North London, uh, which uh, was built in late Victorian times when expansion's happening all over the place. And no one wants to build there. Um, so they actually close it, or they, rather they keep it, but they keep it for, for goods trains only. And then when they're coming to look again at the whole system under the 
modernization plan, um, this is the, the sort of Enfield area, um, they realized, you know, this is actually rather an asset. So they put stations on it again, uh, near where the old ones were, and they electrify it. And now it's, a, you know, one of London's many busy commuter routes. Um, but it, as I say, it's an exception that proves the rule. And there are other cases where the railways are pushing outward and uh, the houses effectively are following them. So um, there's a curious branch that goes down to Chessington. The curious thing about it is it's just a little branch line and it stops. And um, if you, you know, grow up in London as a child, you might get taken to Chessington Zoo and you go on that railway. Um, but it was, it was meant to go on. It was meant to continue and it would join up with the main system. And um, they were, it had opened as far as Chessington in 1939, so significant date, and you can probably guess what's coming next. Um, but uh, they carried on building it um, into 1940-41. Um, but by that time, they were using uh, rubble from uh, the, from the Blitz, you know, clearance rubble as hardcore to build the railway embankment so they were bringing it down sort of tipping it and carrying on just as the victorian railways had been built really you know you sort of push in from one end and you tip the stuff and you carry on and carry on um that way coming in from uh, from from on the rail side rather than on the land side and then the war ended and we had the green belt so the area it was pushing into was suddenly designated as um you know, not to be built on. But up to that point, uh, the railway and the developer are sort of advancing hand in hand. Um, as post-war planning gets more complex and, you know, one has to say more kind of far-sighted, then that stops. So quite often you're looking at, a, a, particularly around a big city, and London, the best example, not the only example, you're looking at a, a sort of fossil of where the railways had taken their development, you know, when the music stops, the Second World War and the and the planning act that follows after that mm. um if you could somehow travel back in time and ask someone involved in this whole great story a question what do you think you'd ask difficult to think of a single question um i think because i in the end because the, I, the subject of uh, the experience was so fascinating i think to find an, an intelligent and articulate person in 18 of, of advanced years let's say a 60 year old 70 year old in 1862 um, which is where I start the book, and ask them what they feel about the railways and their memories of first travelling on the railways and their memories of travel before that, and then just sit back and let them sort of spool it out. <laughs> That's <laughs> take, a really good take, answer. Taking taking notes because everyone had a relationship with the railways, and they, you know, almost everybody still does. Perhaps, or perhaps not almost everybody, but uh, you know, perhaps the majority of us we still have um, feelings about them and experiences of them. Um, and uh, the same back then, even more so, of course, if you were, particularly if you were uh, someone who travelled a lot, tended to be the more the, the better off, but not not exclusively the better off. And um, people depended on them more, but they also mistrusted them because they were dangerous. They were, you know, obviously dangerous. You'd, you'd have all these jolts and bangs as you were travelling, um, but you sort of reasonably high chance of being caught in an accident a small one because they weren't always fatal they didn't always hurt people um seriously but um you know people were being killed on the rise pretty well every day now no one apart from people who are trespassing or you know um worse or suicides uh dies on the railway at all in, in an ordinary year i think it's eight years since anyone including the workers which is the truly amazing thing 
um, was 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 killed in the course of travelling or working on the railway. They've become a quite extraordinarily safe place, um, and it took a long time to get there. Yeah, are there any heroes that emerge for you in this story? Quite a few, yes. Um, Gladstone is a hero because uh, he um, saw and understood the potential of railways and wanted to make them better, and he was doing it uh, for the general good, for the common good. He didn't have to. Um, he's remembered as a sort of laissez-faire, you know, a, 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 um, a kind of free trade man. I mean, his politics change as the years go by. Uh, but um, this was at a time when um, the general tenor of of the way things were moving was away from intervention and regulation. Um, and instead he, he went in and he did it brilliantly by um, giving the railways an incentive and this slightly complicated story to do with taxes and things, but he gave the railways an incentive um, to take more people at the cheaper rate. Uh, he made it pay for them as well as just imposing it on them. And there's a man who um, associated with that who I think is a bit of an unsung hero of the, of the story um, called Major Pasley, Charles Pasley, um, who was um, one of the early people in charge of the railway inspectorate. And although he wasn't empowered to um, make detailed changes to the design of the carriages, uh, he found ways of um, operating just within his regulatory remit, but on the very edges of it, to um, turn down bad designs, you know, carriages without windows. They have to, they're, they're told to cover, to provide covered carriages. Well, they're not quite specified so much about how, what those carriages should look like. So you, all they've said is that you mustn't uh, expose people to the elements. But um, Pasley finds a way for uh, ensuring that the window, that they're adequately lit and ventilated. And then as the as things go on, the inspector would actually start specifying minimum standards. They weren't legally empowered to do this at all. The railways could have, you know, made a stand, but then the railways would have found themselves exposed in other ways legally. I mean, again, this is quite a complicated story. Um, but uh, the the improvement in travel, so that um, in 1862 you wouldn't find yourself travelling in an open truck. In 1840 you might well do. Um, that happens really because of a few far-sighted, and I think. Um, genuinely idealistic um, reformers. Hmm. Um, and finally, I guess, are there any ways in which you'd like this book to change how people view the history of the railways and its current state, I suppose? The, well, I, I, coming back to the present, of course, now we have a privatised railway system, which measured by some standards has been a great success um, in that it's the number of people travelling over the past 20 years has doubled the number, of, I should say, the number of passenger journeys, which is a slightly different thing. Um, However, uh, British Rail, in its final years, um, operated on a subsidy of about a billion a year. Um, the railways now require about five billion a year. So you could ask what British Rail would have been able to do uh, with five billion, a subsidy of five billion a year. So it's uh, you know, regardless of the number of the headline figure of the number of number of travellers or the number of journeys um, with a five-fold increase in subsidy. Well, um, add to that the multiplier that more people are travelling, that you've got a larger uh, uh, stream of revenue from that. So you could imagine a sort of counterfactual uh, history in which um, a government very committed to the railways announces an investment program like that of the modernization plan in 1955, says we're going to invest in the railways, we'll treat it as investment. Um, your subsidy will therefore increase um, by five billion, 
to 5 billion. I mean, investment and subsidy, again, it's, these are complicated terms and, and one can sort of divide them either way. Um, on top of that, um, and I'm sorry that this is a complicated story, but perhaps it's one reason why it's not widely understood. Um, the nationally owned infrastructure, uh, now called Network Rail, um, which was unsuccessfully privatised as rail track, which then got into difficulties and had to be uh, had to be renationalised re effectively. Um, that uh, levies charges on the railway operating companies uh, for to use its track, um, but these charges have to be set at a rate which allows the companies to make a profit. And Network Rail um, is now in debt as a result, uh, largely as a result of the the, the um, uh, uh, level at which these charges are set. Um, and that debt is uh, stands at thirty four billion pounds when last um, announced. So there's the subsidy, and then there's the debt, um, and um, somehow this isn't the big headline story that always that I still sort of expect it to be. Um, of course, people have a lot of things on their minds and uh, perhaps uh, not always the longest attention spans. But there we are. I mean, that's that's uh, those are the basic figures. Um, and, um, you know, people, no one especially loved British Rail when we had it, but it was a very efficient organisation. It, uh, it, it was uh, lean and, you know, thoroughly reformed organisation towards the end. It knew what it was doing. Um and uh, one could ask, you know, if it had been allowed to carry on doing that, but with more um, support and, and uh, investment, what the railways might look like now. Mm. You also say in the book that the railway system represents uh, a way in which, the, you know, the whole country has been enriched by the past. Do you, I mean, how do you think that is? I, you have to um, dig a little way into it, but a little bit of uh, knowledge or even just um sense of inquiry goes a long way, I think, because um, if you have an interest in architecture or historic buildings, then there are the railway structures often, you know, some of them very old, coming up for almost 200 years old, when you think about the earliest lines, stations from the 1830s, still in use. Um, there's the impact that the railways have, you know, thinking about what's built next to the station, what was there before, um, how have the roads come? You know, most places, many places have a station road. Even places that don't have a station anymore, um, you can you can see the effect of the railway, the village with the development that goes down towards where the railway station used to be. You know, the sort of T-shaped or Y-shaped village with the long tail going down to the station. So it's things like that, um, as well as uh, the uh, perhaps more technical things, which. Um, the kind that get railway enthusiasts excited, like the places where the old semaphore signals still survive, you know, with the arms, the coloured arms going up and down, uh, the old mechanical signal boxes that operate those those signals. And these are dwindling away. Um, it's harder to find them. But if you start to notice, for instance, the design of footbridges on a particular line or um, station buildings or the little various little cabins and things, um, then quite often you begin to see the consistency that there is a particular character of a particular route and that sometimes and very often does uh derive from its original ownership back when there were you know two dozen or more major independent companies each with their own house style and their own way of doing things that was simon bradley the railways nation network and people is out now published by profile
and the book was recently chosen as BBC Radio 4's Book of the Week. And UK listeners can still access episodes of this on the BBC iPlayer Radio for the next couple of weeks or so. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Before our next interview, here's a reminder about our BBC History magazine events, which are taking place in February. On Saturday the 27th and Sunday the 28th of that month, at Bristol's Emshed Museum, we're holding two-day events themed around Roman Britain and the First World War in 1916. Each day includes a star-studded lineup of speakers plus a buffet lunch. To find out more details or to purchase tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. Now, each month in the magazine, we run an article called History Explorer, where we visit a location of historical importance in the United Kingdom. For this month's edition, we've turned our attention to Titanic Belfast, the former shipyard where the world's most famous ocean liner was constructed just over a century ago. Our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, hopped on a plane over to Belfast, and at the shipyard she was met by Dr Aidan McMichael of the Belfast Titanic Society. So yeah, we're really privileged in that we're right beside the drawing offices in Belfast where Titanic's plans and all the uh, elements of the design and uh, parts of the work that was needed before Titanic was built was carried out. So those drawing offices are only metres away from the, the slipways and you can, you can walk the slipways um, when you come to 
uh, Queen's Island to see the, the whole of the Titanic story. And we, we have all those elements laid out. So after you see where the, the, the ship was designed, we see, you're right, that's where the ship was launched. And uh, it was built underneath a large gantry. It was actually a, a Scottish firm that was uh, responsible for designing the gantry. And it was actually here until uh, the mid-1980s and then it was broken up. So Titanic was built underneath that and it was from that slipway um, after many months of construction that it was launched out onto Belfast Loch. But after it was launched, it was moved to the Thompson uh, Wharf which is not far from the uh, dry dock where when it was completely fitted out the dry dock was used to put on propellers to paint the bottom of the ship and to finish off the ship mm. but the majority of the fitting out was carried out at the Tromson Wharf Right, okay And that's at the very end of Queen's Island And it was launched through a, a massive ceremony, wasn't it? You know Yes, we mentioned earlier that the launch of ships in Belfast were treated as a great spectacle mm. and it was with great pride that the shipyard would have been launching ships and we mentioned that the Olympic had a great fanfare and while the Titanic also would have had uh, a fanfare, it perhaps wouldn't have been as great as the first of the Olympic class of ships, the Olympic, because it, it was the, 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 yeah. the start of that Olympic class. So Titanic, yes, had a great fanfare. All the workers would have been there. And as I said earlier, there would have been perhaps seats sold uh, in view various viewing points around the loch and over at the shipyards. And that would have raised money for charity. Yeah. Um, Edward Smith was, was the ship's captain, wasn't he? He is somebody who's kind of, he's had quite a lot of bad press, hasn't he? Um, really, since the sinking, about, you know, he was pushing the ship too too hard. Um, what are your, you know, what are your feelings about Smith? Well, I'll say one interesting thing about him in that he was previous to his very short time, as we know, a matter of days on board Titanic as captain. He was actually captain of Olympic. Yeah. And we know that these were big ships and their uh, manoeuvrability wasn't perhaps by him uh, known as much as maybe it could have been. And we have evidence for that because we know that while in Southampton uh, and Captain Smith w was uh, directing her at that point that she, she had an accident with a ship called the Hawk. And as a result of that accident, the quirk of um, history is that she had to come back to Belfast for repair and as a result got back into the Thompson dry dock here in Belfast and gave a minor delay to the completion and finishing of Titanic. And it, 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 it is evidence to show that, you know, the ships, the manoeuvrability of them and the steering of them and m manoeuvring them in tight spaces, Captain Smith... Um, maybe just wasn't as good as we maybe would have thought he was. So if we take that as a signal that um, along with the fact that he was probably going to retire as the, the sort of the number one captain of the White Star Line after um, maybe some time on Titanic. So he was, you know, at the end of his career, he believed perhaps that he was more a sort of a titular head of mm -hmm. the ship and that some of the other officers on board perhaps were more involved with the day-to-day -day running of the ship. But crucially, we know from evidence given at some of the inquiries after the sinking of Titanic that we think now in modern terms we would say that Captain Smith entered a kind of 
a, a kind of a blind panic and that in terms of leadership in the, the tragedy that unfolded before him, he really wasn't able to make any decisions and his contribution at that point was, was really minimal. Yeah. And therefore, the, 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 we forget that the ship sank very quickly and it, it, it really would have been, you know, chaos, um, uh, particularly towards the end. And any form of leadership from S Smith, we know that the, it wasn't good. So it's all in hindsight, of course, and we take all that evidence together and that he, he did play a role in, in the whole tragedy. I mean, there's, there's many theories, aren't there, about obviously why, why it's happened. We know it obviously hit the iceberg. Um, was it going too fast? Um, and was that was that partly his fault that it was going too fast? I think that yes, we know that they were making some speed because, um, particularly on board, the um, managing director of White Star Line would have ha had his eye on the fact that they would have liked to have made good time, if we can put it like that, mm. when they wanted to reach New York, because they, they were a competitive shipping line and they wanted to make sure that they reached a uh, good time, if we can, you know, maybe put that rather than speeding as such. Yeah. And therefore, um, I think one thing I always say is that, you know, you would never drive a, a ship as fast as you can head on into an iceberg, and that was never the intention, so... I think we have to put firmly the idea that, I mean, it was a tragic accident with many root causes, mm. um, including uh, speed was a contributory factor in the fact that when they were heading directly into the iceberg, they couldn't turn very quickly. The idea that perhaps they didn't have binoculars in the crow's nest, the idea of the fact that there were ice warnings and that those maybe hadn't been communicated to the captain. And, you know the quirk of fate that so many of the bulkheads were compromised when the iceberg tore the side of the ship uh, you know maybe if it had torn two or three of the spaces that are meant to protect the ship the ship would have been as it was designed to be its own saviour which yeah. was to, to be watertight I mean Thomas Andrews the, the architect of the ship um, he was actually on board wasn't he and he lost his life in, in the tragedy Yes, and again, you know, here in Belfast we have a special place for Thomas Andrews, the chief naval architect and responsible for uh, a lot of the design elements within the shipyard. Um, he was on board for a specific reason, and that was to bring a, a little team of men from the shipyard, a kind of... Um, people who would look at the performance of the ship and, and perhaps note all the, the things that perhaps needed sort of tweaks uh, in going forward with not only Titanic but the Olympic class of ships and Thomas Andrews had previously been on board Olympic mm. doing exactly the same okay. thing on its maiden voyages so for instance he had been in New York uh, with other men from the shipyard and these men in the group were called the guarantee team and that guarantee team, that small group of men would have been composed of you know, special apprentices and senior staff and they would have been given a kind of a very privileged position to have been crossing the Atlantic on one of these great ships and ended up in New York and they would all have been very excited about it so it's, it's tragic and the tragic consequences that they were all lost that, that Belfast guarantee team including Thomas Andrews Mm. So 
they are uh, remembered specifically in Belfast at the City Hall. And we have uh, a lovely memorial garden at City Hall and it's always a place that I would recommend a a visit to because it has those very close connections to what happened after Titanic left here on our maiden voyage, the the tragedy that unfolded. What would the experience have been like to actually have sailed, you know, for those that short time uh, on board her? Well, for first-class passengers, it would have been equivalent to have been in some of the really luxurious hotels at the time. So, in many respects, it kind of wouldn't really have been any different from their experiences in in the hotel world. Um, And we know that a lot of the uh, American passengers that had been in Europe that were travelling on board Titanic on that journey... Um, they were travelling from Paris on, on a special train that, mm-hmm. w- that went to Cherbourg and they boarded Titanic. And some of them had been staying in the Ritz. So the Ritz would have been the most you know, luxurious <laughs> place to stay in. So it would have been natural for them to have felt comfortable with the really luxurious surroundings that presented themselves to Titanic. No, we look we look back on it now as being yes the height of luxury, but mm. in many respects it, it really was just a reflection of the hotels at that time, and they they tried to give a feeling of um, that it was like a floating hotel. So they would have had the restaurants and the cafes reflected the same elements that were in hotels at the time. Right. So for instance, the Cafe Parisienne on board and the, the first class restaurant and it, it it was like being in the Ritz yeah. or one of the big hotels in London. What about further down the, the sort of social scale? You know, what would what would a third would a third class passenger have been amazed by their surroundings or again would it have been quite similar to what they were used to? On land? No, I think that, yes, for them, they would have been um, in what we probably look at now as what feel like basic Mm. conditions, but for them would have maybe been um, full of mod cons, you know, to see maybe perhaps a bath or electric light um, and, you know, hot and cold running water. To some of them, that definitely would have been a reflection of the modern world that was dawning on the Edwardians. There's a lot of faith in the ship, wasn't there? Safety, you know, and, and how it had been built. Um, there was no... No-one ever thought that it could actually sink, did they? Yes, that's right. And the, the, the media picked up on that. It was mm. nothing really that the shipyards ever said themselves, but okay. the media picked up the, the newspapers of the time. And there was a lot of talk about uh, the concept of being at sea being on a ship and crossing the Atlantic because that was the world at the time. There was a lot of migration and, you know, you couldn't fly across the Atlantic or anything, so everything was by ship. So there was a lot of media interest in anything to do with shipping and they they, they did pick up on the fact that they coined the phrase that potentially Titanic was unsinkable and they they loved those headlines in those days. So um, the media were responsible for kind of putting out there that in theory it was it was unsinkable um why did they not have the right number of why did they not have enough lifeboats for everybody on board yeah it's a really interesting question and again when if you come to belfast and walk the slipways of uh the old harland and Wolf shipyards what they've done on the slipway is to mark out 
both the outline of Olympic and Titanic. So you can walk the full length of those ships and on the one that represents where the Titanic was built, they've actually marked on it the uh, boat deck. And interestingly, the boat deck was the second class accommodation because the... uh, theory would have been that if you were first class you would have walked on an open deck uh, meaning there was no obstruction to your um, promenade (laughs) as they would have called it so that promenade the promenade deck for first class was actually below the the boat deck the boat deck was right on top and had all the boats on it and if you were second class you had to kind of make your way around the davits that would have held those boats and so on so it was the second class passengers who would have been seeing those boats every day on their journey the first class passengers had a a kind of a clear Mm. run down the length of the ship so just to go back to your question the uh, origin of the number of boats that ended up on Titanic uh, and uh, if you think about it on Olympic which was already in in, um, operation across Mm. the Atlantic that goes back to discussions between the White Star Line and Harlem de Wolf and what happened was that there was a very intimate discussion between Bruce Ismay and um, the uh, design team in Harlem Wolf and that conversation we understand uh, took place in, in a specific time a number of hours of discussion and they would have discussed everything from the wallpaper to what the first class dining room would have looked like to other accommodations mm. on board and there would have been a few minutes where they discussed the number of lifeboats and remember that the priority was that this ship was going to represent luxury mm. and that lifeboats um, don't really do that I guess. They, they, they would have taken up a considerable amount of additional space on this promenade deck for the second class passengers and it it was viewed by White Star that they didn't need to go beyond what was legally required and therefore it was the legal minimum that was required under law at the time to install the number of lifeboats that Titanic ended up with and that they could have had more and those would have been uh, additional to the legal requirement, the minimum legal requirement. So, they, so what they did was, was not was perfectly legal then, they, they, they fulfilled all the criteria of the day safety-wise. Yes. The Board of Trade at the time who would have stipulated the number of boat, the number of uh, lifeboats that were required, um, set out the, the criteria, and one critique of that is that those that system of rules, I suppose, um, was perhaps outdated, and the, the the board of trade perhaps hadn't kept up with the increase in the size of boats and the number of passengers and crew that they were carrying. Right. So, while it did make the legal requirement. It was a legal requirement that was perhaps outdated. Titanic set it set sail from Southampton on the 10th of April, um, and then it went over to to Cherbourg, didn't it, to pick up another load of passengers? Yes, and that's very interesting because we're sitting right beside SS Nomadic in her dry dock. Yeah. And Nomadic was built by White Star Line, and the great thing is that we have the last White Star Line <laughs> ship in the mm. world here in Belfast, and. She was built by uh, White Star Line to transfer passengers from Cherbourg out to Titanic and the other great White Star Line ships that we've been calling at at Cherbourg. And Cherbourg's dock wouldn't have been big enough to have accommodated Titanic, so Titanic was anchored outside the dock and it was Nomadic who stopped um, at the dock of Cherbourg and took 
uh, the first-class passengers that were coming down by the Titanic train from Paris, mm. some of them having stayed in the Ritz overnight, and they would have been travelling out in um, equitable uh, accommodation on board Nomadic with a first-class area and with a second-class area and with a third-class area, and there also would have been post and baggage mm. uh, taken out on board. So they would have spent 20 minutes travelling out to Titanic and today we have Nomadic back in Belfast just um, flying the French flag <laughs> and uh, you can go on board and have that same experience of seeing where those passengers spent that time. Yeah, the last real white Starline experience really. Um, yes. Um, and then it went on to Cove which was then Queenstown wasn't it in, in Southern Ireland and that was the very last point um, of call wasn't it for Titanic before it set sail off to, to New York yes and <coughs> Wild Cove is the largest um, uh, harbour one of the largest harbours in the world Titanic again uh, wasn't able to kind of go right into the uh, mooring at Queenstown or Cove it, it moored out uh, outside and um, kind of swung round on her anchor yeah. while the tender took passengers from the harbour out to the ship. And during that period, there would have been a series of little boats that mm. came out to Titanic plying trade and women with lace, for example, would have okay. been invited out to the ship and perhaps some of the passengers would have bought lace. And we we've know some of the detail of this because... The great connection of Queenstown now Cove was Father Brown, who took the photographs of uh, his very short journey from Southampton to Queenstown, and he took a series of photographs on board, and indeed he took one of the last photographs as Titanic sailed out from that natural harbour, and he was on board the tender returning to the harbour, and he was able to get that last view of... uh, Titanic as she sailed across the Atlantic. The ship actually struck the iceberg sort of quite late at night, didn't it? Just before midnight. Um, would people have been aware? Because it's such a huge ship. Would, it, would they have been aware that they'd actually struck something and that something was wrong? When would people been would have known when you know that that things were going sort of badly wrong? Well, it depended where in the ship you were mm. and, and also what you were doing. For example, if you were uh, a fireman or you know a stoker. Uh, in, in the kind of the bowels of the ship right next to the, the engines. This is basically where the, the uh, iceberg struck the side of the ship and you would have been aware immediately because some of those rooms that they were based in would have had water pouring into them immediately and you, know, you would have been roused immediately and you would have uh, been forced into action immediately and we know that some of the watertight doors perhaps were shut quite quickly but um, if you were, for instance, um, a, a passenger, particularly in first-class accommodation, perhaps through some of the uh, distance from the actual rupture in the side of the ship, it, it maybe wouldn't have felt like a major incident. No. It maybe would have felt like a rumbling of an engine or um, perhaps nothing to be so concerned about. Yeah. And again, reflecting on what we, we talked about earlier, that they would never have thought that this was a possibility. Yeah. So they would have maybe, if they were in bed, they would have maybe just turned and, and tried to go back to sleep. Yeah. So when when did um, the alarm start being raised? When did they start realising that people needed to be 
you know, taken off the ship? Well, we do know that um, Thomas Andrews would have been, um, on the one hand, a great person to have had on board because, yeah. you know, here we have a naval architect and he would have had the plans of the ship. So I think we understand that he would have been sort of deputised to go down to have a look at what was going on yeah. and it was him who would have ascertained the distance along the side of the ship uh, that the breach in the hull uh, was made and therefore how many of the watertight compartments would have been at risk yeah. and then there would have been a calculation based on the amount of water entering the ship how long the ship had um, and you know after a discussion with the captain and and maybe Bruce Ismay was involved in this because he was the technically the owner of the ship mm. but certainly at that point he was on board too wasn't he Bruce Ismay was on board um, and he had one of two very special cabins on board and those had a private promenade deck. Lovely. <laughs> and there was just two of them. And the other one was occupied by a woman called Lady Cardeza. And she was coming back from a safari in Africa. And she's interesting because she um, carried a lot of baggage and she had one of the biggest insurance claims on board because oh, really? she claimed for all her dresses and all her jewellery and all sorts of things. The story of Titanic is, is one that still people are still fascinated with. And you just look at the, the the museum behind us, you know, we can you know it's still something that people are very interested in. Why do you think it's Titanic over you know other tra- you know there've been other naval tragedies? You know, we mentioned the Lusitania we were talking about earlier that perhaps don't get the same sort of um, interest. What, what, what is it about Titanic that people are so interested in? Yeah, I think it is because it, it's a hook into a whole world that we're all all fascinated by. You know that sort of Edwardian period of um, the class system, for example, the fact that, that, that it had this great luxury, um, and the fact that there were so many people involved that everybody knows some aspect of the story, whether it's the, the the first class passengers or some of the crew mm. um, and also the fact that there are lots of different elements of the story that contributed perhaps in, a, in the end to the loss and again I think we all find that fascinating because there's no actual sort of one single answer to it so no. we could all be discussing you know speed or the iceberg or the design of the ship or whether or not the rivets were the correct metal and there's lots of elements of fascination with the story with the people with the tragedy um, and it does represent that sort of great period of history that was sort of about to come to an end mm. and our lives are so different now and uh, and I think maybe that there is a harping back to something that was um, of interest for everybody yeah. in that period. That was Dr Aidan McMichael in the company of Charlotte Hodgman. You can find out more at titanicbelfast.com And you can read an article by Aidan and Charlotte in the Christmas edition of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's issue, we have articles on Victorian poverty, Elizabeth I's rivalry with Mary Queen of Scots, the medieval history behind Game of Thrones, and the Battle of the Atlantic, among other things. You can get hold of our Christmas edition in all good newsagents and our many digital formats. And that is pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be hosting our annual Christmas history quiz. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast. 
which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>